Hey there, it's Frank Buckley. Today it's a real treat. An author who is on the New York Times bestsellers list right now in the hardcover fiction category with his book, The Escape Artist. It's author Brad Meltzer, who writes the kind of books that many of us really enjoy reading. They are thrillers and mysteries, and all of them end up on the New York Times bestsellers list. He's had a dozen bestsellers, beginning with The Tenth Justice, published in the late 90s, and now it's The Escape Artist, which actually landed at number one on the bestsellers list the day we had our conversation. He also writes children's books, and he hosts TV shows. He's a busy guy, but he gave us a wonderful hour or so of conversation, and you're about to hear it, including his secret about his daily writing routine and what drives him or haunts him as he sits down to write his books. Here's my conversation with Brad Meltzer. Brad, welcome. I am really enjoying The Escape Artist. As I told you earlier, I've got it uh, next to my bed right now. I mean, it's one of those books that I'm, I'm, I look forward to, uh, to putting in my hands every night. Um, as the person who wrote that book and so many others, is it, what is it like to know that you've got millions of people around the world doing that every night? To your words. You know, my fantasy has always been to be in bed with millions of people, I think, <laughs> is what. No, I mean, the reality, the, what's so funny is you don't you don't even think of that. I don't think of that part. So when you say that, I'm, you know, I don't, I've watched people who, you know, they send me pictures reading at the pool. They send me pictures reading in bed. The one that gets to me, though, more than any other is how many people send pictures in their chemo chairs, <laughs> in their, like, you know, hospital beds, in their, like, oh, horrors oh, of horrors, gosh. right? Like, in those things that are... Those places you never think, and of course, my favorite of all is in the military. Yeah. So someone just sent me a picture of the escape artist in Iraq. You know, they're stationed in the desert, and there's a shot of the escape artist in the sand. And oh. you're just like, oh my gosh, when I'm writing, I never think it's going to get there. Um, and But again, that's what I love about a good story is it can go anywhere. This is thriller number 12? Thriller number 12. And it's already on the New York Times bestsellers list. I know, my my family bought a lot of copies. No, I mean we've been very lucky, and yes, just got word about that, so we were thrilled to hear that. Um, is that I know you don't write for that purpose to get on the New York Times bestsellers list, but it has to be gratifying. Let, let me tell you something. When I I was the first in my family to go to a four year college, I didn't know what the bestseller list was. Mm. When they told us we were on it, like I mean, obviously at that point I had known, but we were just like, what? I mean, you know. My parents, my mom used to read The Inquirer and The Star because she told me that's where all the real news is. My mm -hmm. dad would read the sports page. But there were no books in my house. That's just not, it's not how I grew up. And I'll never forget the first time we got the number one spot on the bestseller list. They called my wife because they were looking for me. And so they found her first. She gave them where I was. And so I called my mom, was the first person I called. And I called my mother and she starts crying and I said, where are you, Ma? And she said, I'm at Marshall's. And I'm like, of course you're at Marshall's. My, you know, we're at the top spot of the bestseller list, and my mom is still trying to buy $3 irregular socks. Yeah. And it was my mother's best lesson, right? Never, ever, ever change for anyone. Yeah. And so, you know, to me, that's always been a, a, a wonderful thing that, you know, if we get lucky enough to have it happen, but that doesn't mean you make you any nicer of a person, any better, any smarter. Yeah. You made a joke about your parents or your your family all buying the books. And you were telling me earlier that, was it when your father passed away? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, my parents, both my, both my parents had lost them both. And now you got to go and clean out their closets. 
And I open up their closets and there's stacks of my books over the years. And I'm like, of course there are, yeah. right? Like that's what they're doing. And my dad used to go into every Barnes and Noble and independent bookstore and say, yes, I'm here for Brad Meltzer's new book. He's my favorite author. And they're like, Mr. Meltzer, we know he's your son. <laughs> like we know, we got it. And But that's what he did. And, um, and you know, again, I feel blessed that I'm their legacy, right? Yeah. Like I'm the thing, it's not about selling books. But everything I am today, my sense of humor, my confidence, anything I am is that love they just showered on me. And, you know, whether I wrote a good book or a bad book, whatever I did, my parents were like, that's amazing. So if I lit someone on fire, my mother would be like, good fire. Oh. <laughs> nice way to start a fire on somebody. Oh. <laughs> but that was a good thing for me. Um, this book, uh, The Escape Artist, is uh, set at uh, a place that's especially meaningful to anyone who holds the military in the reverence that I know you do and that I do. Uh, it's set at Dover Air Force Base in Delaware. For people who don't know what happens at Dover, tell them. Yeah, so I was on a USO tour, uh, I think it was six years ago, and they take thriller writers, and they would bring back then every year six different thriller writers to go entertain the troops. And it was there that Dover came on my radar. And I, of course, I'd heard of Dover, um, and it's where our troops are laid to rest when they die in combat. But what I didn't know is that it also has Dover's biggest cases. So, for instance, when the space shuttle goes down, the victims go to Dover. When the when 9/11 happened, all the Pentagon victims in the crash went to Dover. It's also where our top secret spies across the globe go. So you'll see people, you know, they stand at CIA headquarters, and there's those stars behind them on the wall, and each star represents a fallen spy from the CIA who's been killed in battle. And those victims go to Dover too. And it mm. means that Dover is a place that's full of secrets and full of mysteries. And I was like, I need to go in there. I gotta get in there. And yeah. that's where the book, for me, first started. And, and when I, and the truth is, it was a place. I, it was a, it was more transactional, if I'm being honest. I was like, you know, I've done the White House and the secret tunnels below the White House. I've done the Capitol and crawled on my hands and knees below, the, you know, the labyrinth of the Capitol. And I figured I'd go into Dover. It's interesting. I'll write a thriller, and that's it. And when I got there, though, I was humbled because I saw the kind of work they do with our fallen troops. And it's a place, you know, if you die in a car accident and you're disfigured, you get a closed casket funeral and they send you on your way, bury you. But at Dover, they'll spend 14 hours rewiring someone's jaw because they went smoothing it with clay so that someone can get a good last look at their child mm. or rebuilding someone's whole hand because a mother specifically says, I want to hold my son's hand mm. one last time. And I think we're a country starving for heroes right now. These are where the real heroes were. Yeah. I looked at Dover and I was like, I need to make them the heroes of the escape artist. You described what they do as a no-fail mission. Yeah, that's what it is, you know, and, and that's self-described by them. It's interesting, you know, we, we have so much in the, in the government uh, that looks like chaos on a daily basis. You know, for years we were always like, how does the government function? It's such a mess. And Dover is the no-fail mission of the government. You don't mess it up. The people who work there, my main character in the book, and again, it's fiction. I can make up what I want, but I named him after a real uh, mortician there named Zig. And Zig, the real-life Zig, has a ruler that he carried in his pocket, a little six-inch ruler that he would have with him so that he can measure every metal to make sure every quarter inch they're exactly apart. He would make sure, you know, if the flag uh, was placed on the coffin or their uniforms, everyone at Dover will take threads and just go through and, and pull threads, an excess thread here, an excess thread there, and then find 10 more beyond those. And they want it to be perfect. Someone who's made the ultimate sacrifice deserves no less than honor and dignity 
and respect. Yeah. And man, do I admire that. I feel like that's the kind of hero we need today. Just, you know, we, we always look for clear cut heroes and it's hard to find, but these were the ones. And, and that story I told you about, you know, 14 hours rewiring a jaw, that person didn't take overtime for it because they didn't see it as a job. Mm. They saw it as a mission. Yeah. And I have to admire that. Absolutely. Um, during one of your research visits, you wrote this in the Washington Post. A mortician gave me a piece of information that I'll never forget. I was describing the plot of my book, asking whether there's any way a person could leave a hidden message inside his body before he died. The room went silent. And then what happened? It's incredible. So I always take my plots, and I say, and I said to him there, could you hide a secret message on a body? And he said to me, oh, yeah, you can, if your plane is going down and it's about to crash, depending on timing, you can write a note eat the note, and the liquids in your stomach will potentially protect that note upon the crash. And I thought, that's an interesting story. And he's like, it's not a story. It happened on 9-11. I said, what are you talking about? And he said to me, on 9-11, the Pentagon victims, obviously all of them were brought to Dover. They were in pieces at that point, right? There's not, I mean, they were just, it was a holocaust. And they said when they opened a stomach, that in the stomach of someone, there was actually a secret note. And I said, well, what'd the notes say, right? You have to ask that. And they wouldn't tell me what it said. I respect the privacy of that. I figured it has to be someone in the military because who else would have the wherewithal in that moment to do such a thing? And as I look on it now, it makes me realize that whoever wrote that note, that what they had to be looking for was that thing we're all looking for, which is connection, right? We all want to love and be loved. And I can tell you when my parents passed, one of the gifts I got was I got to say goodbye to them. Mm. And I'll never forget that they called that note that was in someone's stomach uh, the ultimate message in a bottle. And the reason I take hope from that note is it proves to me that when we reach out in the universe, that when we send that message in a bottle, that we're going to be heard. And I said, that's the plot of the book, right? I knew right there that's the plot of the book. Chapter one, you know, Nola Brown, who's one of my favorite characters I've ever written, uh, she, you know, people call her my new girl with the dragon tattoo, like which again is not fair to the girl with the dragon tattoo. But I take the I'll take the compliment. Uh, she's dead. She dies in a plane crash. Her body comes to Dover. Zig, our hero, opens up the body, and in her stomach is a note. And this note says, "Nola, you were right. Keep running." And she's not dead. She's alive. She's on the run. She's the escape artist. I just ruined chapter one of the book for you, but there it is. But well, you again, didn't ruin it for yeah, me. I loved it when yeah, I read it. And, but the point of it was, is you know, I can start right there. I mean, it was amazing to get that from a real-life story, right? Yeah. Blew me. I just happened to ask the right question. I wasn't searching for it. I'm not an investigative reporter, but I asked the right question. And right there, I'm like, I can start the book. That's the plot. But I said, don't do it. Don't do it. I'm, I've been at this 20 years, my 20th year of writing novels. I can figure out how to build the boat as I'm sailing the boat. But I said, don't start the book until you have NOLA. Because I looked back at my own work, and I was like, which are my best books? which are the ones that really stood out. And they were the ones that had these fully realized characters. Mm. And so even though I had the plot from the person who told me that story, I just decided to wait, wait until I had Nola before I started. And so let's talk about the process. You, you have this incredible moment. You think about how the book could begin and what the plot could be for this, this story. And then what happens? How do you then proceed. Yeah, I always give the plot to the people who know best. I remember I did a book on the Secret Service and the White House, and there was a murder that uh, had happened at the White House, and I went to the Secret Service, and I said, what would you do if this happened? And they said to me, because I figured, okay, you bring in the CSI people, you know, everything you see on television. 
And I'll never forget the Secret Service said to me, the first thing I do is I repaint. I'm like, what do you mean you repaint? They're like, we're going to repaint the White House. I said, why? And they said, if we repaint one of the rooms in the White House and we do a home renovation, then we have to move the first family across the street to Blair House. Once we get them out, everyone's attention will be on Blair House. No one will be looking at the White House. And now I can do an investigation that nobody knows about right under everyone's faces. And then they said to me that Bill Clinton renovated a room, George W. Bush renovated a room, Obama's renovated a room. The first thing Trump did is they renovated the Oval, right? I mean, he said, you wouldn't believe what's been done here in the name of home renovation. And I was like, that's awesome. That's in the book. That's not my plot. That's reality. Yeah. So to answer your question, that's that's my process is I take that plot and I always give it to the people who know best. And I say, what would you do next? Because mm-hmm. whatever I'm going to make up is not going to be nearly as good as what someone who's an expert in that world is. And that's how I got the plane going down. That's how I got where you can hide a secret note. And that's where I got all of Dover from is just talking to those people who know it better than anybody. But the first step in all of this in terms of the escape artist is what? Thinking, I want to go to Dover and just yeah, see what I happens. Thought, you know, and that's what it is. I, I basically pick a subject I love. You know, I went to Dover and was like, I want to knock on the front door. And if they don't let me in, I'm going to go around and find a back door. And I knocked on the door, and they let me in. And I was surprised, right? Dover's now shut down. Since Trump has been president, he's shut it down. No one gets in. I had almost three years of unprecedented access. And I still ask myself, why? Why'd they let me in? And I hope it's because, listen, I've researched with U.S. presidents before. I've researched with the Secret Service. I think it's coming on 16 years. Um, I've had people there help me. And I think the reason it is is because I write about what I love, right? I don't want to spend two years, three years of my life writing about something I hate, that's not the way to spend your day. Mm-hmm. To me, you gotta pick what you love and, and that will show on the page. When you read a book and you pick up chapter one and it just feels like a train that's leaving the station, you know why it feels like that? It's because the author is so excited to tell you the greatest story they have in their head. And that's the X factor on the page, is does the writer love what they're doing? And if they do, you're gonna feel it, yeah. right? It just feels like a bullet train coming through your brain. And for me, that's what Dover was, is I just went there, I said, all I've got is one detail, the idea of a hidden note on a plane, mm-hmm. I have a hidden note in a body. Show me what you got here and I'll figure the rest out. And when they showed me how Dover works, I started getting more and more pieces of the puzzle. They showed me rooms that were um, just for personal effects, that when a soldier dies, that one of the things, of course, the body goes to Dover, but they take their personal effects that are gonna go back to the family. So it's your computer, your phone, your sunglasses, right? Maybe. Um, pictures that you keep in your pocket, and those really, really precious effects, right, that your wedding ring, the pictures of your kids, or the most heartbreaking of all, a letter that's in your pocket that's halfway written and will never be finished. Mm. And I see something like that, and I'm like, I've got the scene, right? I can't make a detail like that up, Yeah. but I know it's real, and that just the existence of that makes me go, wait a minute, what if there's something in her pocket she wanted no one to know about and here's this body and now the mystery deepens. So it's always the research that drives the plot. So you've you've done the bulk of the research and and then do you start to lay out the story? Do you start at the end? Do you start at the Yeah, the beginning? you're smart. I mean, I I always know who done it because I think you got to know who to leave out of the room when the done it is happening, right? You got to know I always know who the bad guy is. I don't know how I'm going to get there. And to me, that's the fun of it. I once, my second book, I tried to plot the entire book in one kind of fell swoop. Mm-hmm. And it was, I hated it because it just felt like I was playing this big game of connect the dots. There was no spontaneity. I just spent a year and a half connecting one, then to two, then to three, then to four, then to five. And it just, the fun to me is I'll plot out basically the first 50 to 100 pages. And then I see what the characters want to do. 
And I know it sounds crazy, but then, you know, less than six months of thinking about something, you come up with new ideas. You're like, wait a minute. Oh my gosh, she's sleeping with him. That's why she's doing that. And you're driving or your kids are fighting in the back and my brain's wandering. And then you're like, oh, wait a minute. This person's actually working with the bad guy. That's how they, and that's the fun of it to me is watching it over the course of a year, year and a half, these new ideas kind of just slowly develop as yeah. any good idea that you put in more time to develops. I've heard so many writers say that eventually my characters tell me where to take the story. It sounds kind of like that's what you're no, saying. No, that's what you want. I mean, that's what all of us writers say to sound really artsy-fartsy, right? Like, we, we, the character took me on a journey, and I right. just followed their genius. <laughs> um, rarely does it happen. It happens when you have a great character. Okay. Um, for Nola, it was it, it had, if I'm being blunt honest, it hadn't happened for me for a while. It happened with Nola, because uh, Nola was, we were filming our TV show, Lost History, um, and... We were chasing the 9-11 flag that the firefighters raised at Ground Zero. And we found the flag, and we were doing this, uh, the first episode of it. And the truth was, the cameras were setting up. What I didn't tell anybody is they were giving me a private tour of the Army base and the military museum where we were filming. Because they wanted to place, they wanted us to film. It's the flag episode at a place that's very kind of rah-rah and very, you know, a military backdrop. And as we're walking around, they're showing me that they have paintings of Adolf Hitler here. They have paintings done by these top military people. And I'm like, why does the government have all this art? It made no sense. And I found out that since World War I, the U.S. government has had an actual artist, a painter on staff, whose job it is to paint disasters as they happen. And I'm like, they said they were there since the storming the beaches of Normandy. Uh, after that, Vietnam, 9-11, they've always been there. And we never know about it. They've no. always been there, right? We have photographers, we have videographers, but those people capture a moment. What a painter does is they tell a full story. And I said, you're telling me that everyone else is racing in with guns blazing to a disaster, and we've got someone racing in with nothing but paintbrushes in their pockets? I'm like, that's the craziest person in the entire universe. I got to meet him. <laughs> and they were like, you mean her. You want to meet her. And as soon as they said the word her, the character Nola kind of fully formed came out. I knew it. And I can tell you, I'm, I write comic books, and I write Superman and Batman and Justice League, and my friend Gene Ha, who's a comic book artist, came to visit me years ago, and he said, I'm so glad I got to spend some time with you, because now, looking at you, I know more about you. And I'm like, what do you mean? Where You know, I know you. And he's, he rattles off a list of all these things that I do that I don't even realize I'm doing. And I realize an artist sees the world differently than we yeah. do. They just do. My friend Chip Kidd is a graphic designer. You and I see a stop sign. Chip sees one of the greatest representations of graphic design ever created, right? He just sees the world differently. It can be read in any language in any country. And that's what Nola was to me. She sees the world as an artist differently. So she sees which way your belt buckle faces because she knows whether you're right-handed or left-handed. She sees you have crow's feet on only one eye because you're a hunter and that's your aiming eye. She sees when you walk past a reflective surface, you always check yourself because you're vain. She sees your weaknesses. Yeah. And I knew right there in this character, this real life Sergeant Brown that I met, that I, even though she's completely different, I made her up, but here was gonna be a character that just grabbed me by the throat and said, pay attention to me. And the truth was, is I can plot for Nola and say, Nola, you gotta do this and what's up, and she'll say, I'm not that stupid. She just, I'm not doing that dumbass thing, Meltzer. Give me something better. Wow. And I know it sounds crazy because you're talking to imaginary friends now, but yeah. but that, if you're doing your job right, that's basically how you, you hope it goes. So let's talk about Nola because Nola is a woman. Yeah. You're, you're not a woman. Um, and so writing this strong, 
female character, what informs your writing since you're a man? Yeah, no, and uh, the first time I ever wrote a female lead, I remember I wrote this scene, one of the first scenes I wrote, then she was very nervous and she races into the bathroom and she basically puts the water on and she cups the water in her hand and splashes on her face to calm herself down. And my wife read it, this is 20 years ago, and said 19 years ago, and she said to me, you clearly have never worn makeup. And I was like, oh, right, thank you, right? And you realize, I mean, that's obviously just the superficial level of it, yeah. um, but it is a different responsibility. And I can't say that I'm, I can't with a straight face sit here and say, I totally understand what it's like to be a woman. I don't. What I do understand is what it's like to be Nola. And I know that character because um, she has parts of me um, and a much harder part of you know my life um, and par- harder than I'll ever have it. But um, I hope, but I understand her. And the truth was is where I get it wrong, I rely, you know, my wife, my uh, publisher, my agents, they're all women. Mm. And so they're the first reads. So make no mistake, they have no hesitation telling me where I screw it up. <laughs> um, but I think that for me, I love that people are reacting to Nola in this way. And, you know, you, you, we all of us, the great thing that a novel does is it lets you look through someone else's eyes. Yeah. And I just know how to look through hers. How do you decide what point of view you're going to tell in, in, the, in the book or... Is it gonna be first person or omniscient, or how do you decide that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. When I first started writing uh, 20 years ago, my first book was a third person thing. I said, you know, Ben Addison was sweating like a pig. It wasn't supposed to be that way. There's chapter one, line one, go third person. And when I wrote my second book, my biggest fear, I think, as a writer is just being that person. You know, you've read a writer, and they, they were really good in the beginning, and then you read book like whatever, 10 or 12 or even three or four, and you're like, yeah, you know, the good ones, the first ones were good, but now they're kind of sagging. I'm terrified of that. Hmm. That's a terror to me to ever be that I've gotten bored with it, that I'm tired of it, that I'm like failing at it, that I'm just sagging somehow. And so I always, every book, try to do something I've never done before. I just do. I can't help it because it makes it interesting to me. So the second book came out, and I said, Can I do two people, two perspectives? One first person, one third person. And my editor at the time said, No, no, they say you can't do that. And I said, okay, well, I can't do that. So I just, I wrote, I wrote a third person. And I just struggled with that book. And when it came to the third book, I finally, after three books, realized there's no they. Who's they? Who's they can't do? Who's the they that's telling me I can't do this? Right. So I just tried it. I took a first person narrator and a third person narrator. And I tried it. And it worked. Yeah. And it was a bigger selling book than any that I'd written before. So I was like, well, let's try it again. In one of the books, I said, can I take a first person narrator and kill them? right? That you're following a character like, I'm doing this, I'm doing yeah. that. And that you know is that you're safe, right? You're in that person's head. And somewhere in the, you know, I murdered the character. I won't tell you which one because it would ruin the book. Uh-huh. But I, people were like, that was the craziest twist I've ever seen. Right. Why'd you do it? And I said, because I didn't know if I could pull it off. And so when it came to the escape artist, I just felt like I knew I wanted to be in two perspectives. And I had just done three books where I'd done all first person. And I just said, you know what? I just want to do it differently to see if I can do it. Yeah. And that's what the fresh part of it was. Are there certain conventions that people expect in your writing or in, in your book so that by page 20 they expect someone to die or by page Yeah, 100... people want everyone to die. Murder. <laughs> I, want mur- I want blood is what – no, I, right. you know, but a very smart question. So it's interesting. In The 10th Justice, my first book 20 years ago, the big hook for the entire book – was I think page, you know, by page 40 was like, I sink it into you. You're like, dun, 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 here's the big reveal, here's the villain, oh my gosh, you screwed up, you're dead. 
and that was you know maybe three chapters or so no one has that patience anymore Hmm. the patience of the reader over the course of 20 years it's like looking at a 20 year old movie i show my son who's 16 and can really watch movies with taste now i showed him glenn gary glenn ross recently one of my favorite movies of all time it was too slow for him it just was like it didn't have that pace and i and and he understood it was a beautifully acted movie he understood the dialogue was rat-a-tat-tat but the pacing in 10 to 20 years has just shifted. We're just mm. used to a much more boom, 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 right. cut, 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 cut. Everything's a music video. Yeah. And I'm sure you see it right on the news all the time, yeah. right? What used to be a long story, I remember going on my first interview on the Today Show and it was like, you know, we had seven minutes and then 10 years later you had five minutes and now they're like, you got three and a half minutes. I mean, we just are used to consuming information quicker. Yeah. And so now I truly try to hook you from the first page really from the first line if I can get you. Mm-hmm. I think that's the one thing that everyone expects is they want when they pick up a thriller, like put the hooks in me and grab me. Yeah. And if you don't grab them, to me, if you don't, I used to say, if you don't grab my by page 40, you're done. Now I'm like, if you don't grab them by the first chapter, say goodbye. Wow. And that's why I went back at the end of this book, we were talking off air and I rewrote the first chapter of this book at the end because I was like, you know what? I got an even better grabber. Let me let me really try and get you by the throat. Yeah, and we don't want to give away exactly what happens, even though you sort of gave us the outlines yes, of it. Yes, yes. It's uh, it, it's it really is gripping. Talk to me about your process. You sit down at what time of the day? Um, how long do you write? How do you write? Yeah, for me, um, I treat it like a job. I really do. I sit down. I used to sit down at 9 o'clock. Now I sit down by about 9.30. Um, I try to be writing by 10. I will write until straight till 2.30. I don't take lunch until really late. Um, I just feel like I'm better when I'm hungry. Uh, and I found out years later, Stephen King said something in one of his books about it. I'm like, that's what I, I didn't realize it was because I, I needed to be hungry. I just thought that was my body clock. So I take lunch around 2.30. I eat a very quick lunch, like nothing, like turkey sandwich, plain as can be, just something that is the same almost every day. Um, so I don't think about it. I want my brain working on other things. Mm-hmm. And then I sit back down again. And to me, writing is like squeezing a sponge until it's dry, right? There's a, one point where you just, you're just squeezing it and nothing else is coming out. It's done. And that's how I feel like writing is for me. I can sometimes write until 6 p.m. And sometimes I'll peter out at 3 p.m. And sometimes I'll peter out, you know, once I hit lunch, I'm done. I'm never coming back. Mm. But I just try to still sit down at that table and do something else and make sure I keep going. On those days where you find yourself hitting a wall, as it were, do you try to push through that wall? Do you force yourself to sit in front of that that Always. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no. I mean, to me... The phone only rings when you get in the shower, right? So I get in the shower, so to speak. I may, you know, I'll sit in that seat and either just try and figure it out, or I'll call a friend. I'll do something that takes my mind. I mean, social media is sadly the stupidest and easiest thing to just instantly enrage yourself and take your brain elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And once you do, once you jump in that shower, like I'll walk around the block. I'll literally get in my car and just run a dumb errand. But the moment you stop, you know, it's like if I said to you, "Tell me a joke right now," you'd be like, "Um, I, let me think of a joke." It's just hard when the pressure's on. But the moment I leave you, the joke comes right in your head, and you're like, oh, man, I should have told that joke. And that's how writing is. Like, the moment you're trying to, like, be funny, have something clever to say, it's not coming. Hmm. Like, to me, it's when you stop thinking about it and you just relax that you can let your thoughts go. But if I try and, you know, if I try and drag it out of you, it's going to be much harder. There has to be pressure for someone like you to have so many bestsellers. They expect it. Right. Well, they, I, know, I never thought that, but thank you for putting that pressure on me. No, no, of course we know that, right? right? That's a thing, of course. Um, the audience expects it. Your publisher expects it. You expect it. 
do you still have that moment of, I'm not sure, here it is, I hope it's good, or do you just know this one's a home you know, run? I never put out a book that I don't think is what I hope my best book there, but they obviously can't all be your best, right? They just can't be. Hmm. So I, this is my secret. This is my secret, ready? So for tw- I've been doing this 20 years. This is the 20th uh, you know, year that uh, since the first book came out. And when my first novel that I ever wrote was submitted, it was submitted to 24 publishers at the time. I was a 24-year-old kid. 24 publishers had it. We got 22 quick rejection letters. The last two, 23 and 24, actually said they enjoyed the book. And they invited me to their offices to come meet with them, to talk about it. I was very excited, right? I was like, oh my gosh, my first book, and they're interested, and we're talking. And my agent at the time said to me, I think we're going to have a bidding situation. They're going to bid against each other. You're going to make a lot of money. Stay by your phone. This was pre-cell phone, so it was like, stand by your phone. The call will come at whatever time it was. And I'm going to call you, and we're going to tell you what the bidding was. And I was in debt at the time, right? I was like, had you know, money was an issue. And I was just happy to like, maybe we would get out of that. So I wait by my phone, and the phone rings, and I'm waiting for her to pick it up and tell me, you made it, Brad, this is it. And I picked up the phone, and I'll never forget her words. She said, sorry, kiddo, and I was devastated. Mm. That was it. Rejection 23, rejection 24, the book was dead. No one was going to buy it. Mm. And I was devastated by that. And I'll tell you this, is that for 20-plus years now, every single day that I sit down to write, I replay that moment. I physically picture the room I'm in. I picture the kind of phone I was holding. It was one of those clear see-through ones where you could see the wires inside because that seemed high-tech at the time. I picture the Formica desk that was on my left, the swivel lamp that every college kid has on a desk. On my right is a bed with just a box spring. I picture the Apple Macintosh that was on there. I picture the terrace that I was looking over the parking lot that was below it, and I see a fire station that has three doors. One, two, three. I count them in my head. I see them every morning. And before I do a lick of work for 20 years now, never missed a day of work doing this, I say those words, sorry, kiddo, because I never, ever, ever want to ever feel like I made it because the moment I think I made it, I'm done. And I never, ever, ever want to be thankless Right? I want to always appreciate what I have, and I certainly always, never, ever, ever want to feel anything than being 24 years old and being so hungry and so desperate that I'm going to write the greatest book of all time. That energy can only come from someone who has nothing, mm. and I never want to lose that energy. So that's my secret for 20-plus years. Sorry, kiddo. Sorry, kiddo. Sorry, kiddo. And it just makes me go. And that's like I'm the escape artist, right? Like, And not the escape runaway but it's the escape of like, how do you move forward and change, right? There are four types of magic tricks. And I don't know if you got to this part in the book, but it says there's, you know, there's, you can uh, make something appear, you can make something disappear. Yeah. You can make two things switch places, or my favorite is you turn one thing into something else. And that's my favorite. And that is what I try to do. My dad, when he was 39 years old, he lost his job. Hmm. And he had $1,200 to his name. It was a disaster for my family. and. He called, I was terrified. He called it the do-over of life. And like it was this big adventure. He was the escape artist, right? Someone who was just like, I'm going to reinvent myself. Mm-hmm. I'm going to become something else. And I can do what I do. I've been doing it for 20 years, but you got to get better. you got to move forward. you got to challenge yourself. you got to transform. And that's what I love doing. That, to me, is the ultimate magic trick. What a great story. Um, I want to ask you, you've had great success writing these 
thrillers, the mysteries. You're on the bestsellers list for every book you write. But do you are you one of those writers who wants to win the Pulitzer someday or who has to get the Man Booker Prize or, you know, the quote-unquote <laughs> No, I've proper, never been asked that. I love you for asking the that. Qua- the quote-unquote proper literature. Yeah. Does that matter to you? You know, I think years ago I would have been like, no, of course that doesn't matter. Who wants such a dumb thing? Like, we want it all, right? If I'm being very honest, like, you know, I want to be on the bestseller list, but I also want to have that Man Booker Prize, whatever such a thing is. I don't even know what it is, and I want it, right? I literally don't know what that award is, and I want it. That's how pathetic I am when I sit here and I say that to you. And that's as, you know, my first yeah. interviews when I was twenty, you know, a twenty-year-old kid. I would just be like, "Everything's great and everything's fantastic," but like, you know, there's a joke that runs through publishing that everyone who's on the bestseller list wants the artsy fartsy prizes, and everyone who gets the artsy fartsy prizes wish they were on the bestseller list. Right. Um, I actually think that that's perfectly appropriate. I think it's great justice that you can't have it all. Yeah. Because if you have it all, you're going to be a miserable jerk anyway. Right. Um, so listen, do, it would have been nice to win that. Like we won um, this one really kind of the artsy fartsy award for comic books of all things. I loved winning that award. It was literally like, oh my gosh, we got. I can't believe we won. They've never given me an award for anything, and I won that writing award. It is the one thing that is displayed. I've gotten all. I've gotten all these awards all these years. It's the one thing I display because wow. it was just that one that meant something to me. But um, I would much rather do what I do. And, and you know, Mark Twain used to say, uh, and I'm paraphrasing him here, but he said, a great literary novel is like a fine wine. And Mark Twain said, my books are like water, but everybody drinks water. Mm. And that's what my books are like. My books are like water, but I love that everyone drinks water. Um, you also write these wonderful children's books. Yeah. And, and, and I think the first time you started writing them, people were like, wait a minute. Yeah, no, like well, I murder people in one day, right. and then I come back. Nothing goes better with murder than children's books, right? I mean, and that's the best part is for the escape artists. We have all these kids coming, and I'm here. I'm talking about Dover and dead bodies and like murder, and the kids are in the audience. Like I'm like I say to the parents, I'm like, you're gonna have the best questions going to bed tonight. Like you, are, those are all free for you. Um, but right. yeah, I do this line, of, these line of children's books because I had kids, and you know, I think when I was coming up as a novelist, you did one thing. You're a novelist, be a novelist. And then I remember I, want, I said, I'm going to write comic books. And they were like, why are you doing that? I'm like, because comics are cool. And no one did that back then. You know, it was Kevin Smith had done them. And then I t- followed Kevin Smith on Green Arrow. And, you know, it wasn't, everyone said, you can't do that. And I was right. like, says, it was kind of the same rule as the writing thing. Like, says who? Yeah. And then, I was, you know, I was like, I have an idea for a TV show. They're like, novelists don't host TV shows. I'm like, who says? Where, is the, where are these rules? Yeah. And I had kids. That was it. I had kids. It wasn't some, you know, marketing plan. I just had kids and I was tired of them looking at reality TV show stars and people who were famous for being famous and loudmouth athletes who get paid millions of dollars and do nothing for their communities. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are some great ones out there, but I was like, I got so many better heroes for them. Yeah. So we started with I'm Amelia Earhart and I'm Abraham Lincoln. And we started a whole line of illustrated children's books. And they're not about history. They're about values. Yeah. You know, if I if I tell you if I tell my daughter that Amelia Earhart flew across the Atlantic Ocean, she's like, big deal, Dad. Everyone flies across the Atlantic. But if I tell her, and this is true, when Amelia Earhart was seven years old, she built a homemade roller coaster in her backyard, and she shoved it to the roof of her tool shed. She put roller skating wheels on the bottom of it. She came careening down the side on big two by fours, whatever you know, the pieces of wood were, and you know, goes flying through the air and crashes and gets up and yells, you know. Now Amelia Earhart's alive again. Yeah. And she's bold and she's daring. She's amazing. And I said, that's the kind of book we do. So we always start with the hero when they're a kid. 
And we did I Am Jackie Robinson, My Son Loves Sports. I did that one. My daughter, I did I Am Lucille Ball because I wanted my daughter to have a female entertainment hero who wasn't just famous for being thin and pretty. Yeah. That Lucy stands for the idea it's great to be different. And I did She Loves Our Dog. I did I Am Jane Goodall for her because, of course, loving animals and one of our top sellers. And then my youngest son is a creator. Loves to draw and color. We did I Am Jim Henson for him. And... On Sesame Street, when I was five years old, Jim Henson taught me you could use your creativity to put good into this world. And I hope as I sit here today, that's all I'm trying to do, is trying to still put good into this world and helping people build libraries of real heroes for their kids and their grandkids and their nieces and their nephews. Brad, congratulations on another bestseller and and, and on all your work and, and for the way in which you treat the military in this uh, book. No, I appreciate it. The nice, I will say, you're always, I'm always terrified from, you know, any comments, you don't want to get bad ones. And until the, the people in the military at Dover finally got back to me, I sent them the book months ago, before it came out. I was like, just take a look. And I was, it was the most terror kind of stricken I've been until they were like, thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you for like looking at this mission and seeing what you saw. So I appreciate that as someone who comes from a military family. Brad, thank you. Thank you, sir. Thanks again to Brad, and thanks to you for listening. If you'd like to see our conversation, watch Frank Buckley interviews on KTLA this coming Sunday at 7 p.m. or 11.30 p.m., or you can find it after Sunday on KTLA's YouTube channel. Just search for Frank Buckley interviews. Thanks for your feedback on social media. If you'd like to join the conversation, I'm Frank Buckley TV on Twitter and Instagram, and there's a Frank Buckley Facebook page as well. A new podcast drops every Wednesday, and a new TV show airs every Sunday night. Until next time, I'll see you on TV on the KTLA 5 Morning News.